You'll find Psalm 101 on page 501 on the Bibles that are in the backs of the chairs. Perhaps that would be useful to you. And if taking one of those with you, taking it home, would bless you, please do. Please do. As we've been doing all summer, there's no kids' class uh, during the sermon time, but Miss Lisa has made some children's activity sheets in the back that go along with Psalm 101, so if one of those would be helpful for you, please feel free to grab one, give it to your little one, and let them follow along according to that little sheet. We're continuing in our Summer in Psalms book four, making our way through it, getting closer to the end of it, and I'm excited about Psalm 101 this morning. Psalm 101 is the first psalm after the group of psalms that we've discussed already this summer that psalms scholars call the Malak Psalms, where the focus in Psalms 93 through 100 is on the reality and good news of the fact that Yahweh reigns. The one true God is the one who reigns. He reigns over all the earth. He reigns over all other false gods of the nations, and all of the Malak Psalms have this kind of hybrid missional slash community feel to it, simultaneously calling the people of God to worship their king and also calling the people outside the covenant community to embrace the king in faith and to enjoy what it is to have a relationship with him. And Psalm 101 comes right after it. And Psalm 101, as perhaps you see in your copy of the scriptures, does have an author attributed to it. This one is a Psalm of David. I think there are several ways to meditate on Psalm 101 for our benefit. It is a poem, and so there's poetic beauty to be enjoyed here. There's Hebrew rhyme in its original composition that doesn't quite come through in English translations, but there are different facets to the intricacy of what David has poetically written here. For starters, as you meditate on Psalm 101, you could just coldly analyze the data here and find somewhere around 14 variations of the phrase, I will, or similar statements, each of them displaying that this is a psalm of commitment. David is committing two things that are important, and he has written them down for himself and ultimately, big picture, for the people of God to follow along with him and to read it for many generations and sing it as well. You could also just look this psalm up and down and back and forth, reading it multiple times as I did, looking for recurring themes and come away with seeing some of the song-like quality to it and benefit from that. I'm not totally certain that there is an intentional two-stanza structure here, but I think there might be. You can see in verses 2 through 5 and in verses 6 through 8 that they both start with positive commitments and then move to negative commitments. So maybe that rhythm sort of indicates two stanzas. They also both Verses 2 through 5 and 6 through 8 both end with judicial commitments to destroy those who practice heinous wickedness. And that actually is really important. David here is assuming his kingly role as a divinely appointed agent of Yahweh's justice. And so the destruction of the wicked is an act and a right reserved for God alone. But here, David is committing 
to do it as the king of the land because he is God's king acting out God's will. And the sins that you see David committing to punish with destruction are really serious. It might not seem like it at first, and we'll get more into this a little bit later, but the Jewish readers and singers who read and sang this passage many, many years before us would have viewed these sins as truly heinous. And the two sins I'm referring to that you see in Psalm 101 are the sin of pride and the sin of slander. Pride is serious because in part of its origins in the fall, slander a big deal because of its connection with the possibility of unjust punishment toward others. So that's another way you could look at the psalm, seeing this, uh, this sort of two-stanza structure. I also think you can see some thematic rhyming here. In verses 1 and 8, the beginning and the end, there are uh, themes of justice. Both David praising God for his justice and then David committing to pursuing justice as the king. Kind of mirror each other. You see in verses 2 and 7, both of these second and then second to last verses, speaking of David's house in some way or another. Another kind of a mirroring situation. And then in verse 3 and in verses 6 and 7, you see... Two instances of David speaking of his eyes, what he will look away from and what he will turn toward. So you can see some, some rhythm here, some mirroring, some rhyming. But I don't think that either of those approaches, just coldly analyzing all the I will statements or looking, for the two, looking through the two stanza thing here or looking at these rhyming things, are ultimately the most important way to look at Psalm 101, even though they are an important part of understanding it. I think the most important thing we need to see about Psalm 101 is that it is the commitments of Israel's king. Because David was anointed as God's king. And whether he wrote this as he was anticipating being crowned or inaugurated as king, or whether he wrote this shortly after he had become king, or whether he was a little bit seasoned by the time he wrote this, these commitments took place at a specific time and in a specific place and were written by a specific person under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that contextual piece is, I think, the key to unlocking the meaning and purpose of this psalm. So, if you look at verse 1, it's kind of an introduction to the rest of the psalm. It's reminding us that it is a song to be sung. I suppose it could be considered along with the rest of the commitments David makes, where he says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, I will make music. A couple of I will statements that go along with many others throughout the psalm. But I think the context of this psalm, everything else that follows it and the context in which it stands, clues us into really verses 2 through 8 being the main meat of the psalm and verse 1 being a kind of an introduction. So David starts this psalm by saying, I will sing, I will praise you, and now here I go. So let's start by looking at what I'm seeing as, as the three main commitments of Israel's king, and I'm going to read verses 2 through 8 again. I'll start at verse 1 again. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? 
I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set anything before my will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. The first commitment that I think we see in Psalm 101 is a commitment to pursuing integrity. You see this theme all over Psalm 101. It's what saturates David's commitments here. It is at the heart of the matter for him in this passage. It's the heart of Psalm 101 is this commitment to integrity. Look at the beginning of verse 2 where David commits to pursuing or pondering the way that is blameless. Pondering, of course, being thinking about, dwelling on, dedicating time and meditation to the way that is blameless. Now, that way that is blameless certainly isn't talking about sinless perfection, but rather a consistency, a tried and true character that on balance truly seeks to act righteously, both in public and in private. Second part of verse 2, David says that the integrity of heart is something that he wants to characterize his reign. See that phrase at the end of verse 2, my house? That phrase, my house, could be referring to this pursuit of integrity in the way that he leads his family, like I will have integrity in our home, like as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord kind of a thing. But I don't think that's what David is saying specifically here. The context of Psalm 101 is kingly commitments. So this is probably a reference to the palace where the king, David, lives. And so what he's saying is that he wants the center of his reign where he lives to host a king with the center of his being characterized by integrity. In verse 3, at the beginning, he's committed to turning away from anything that is worthless. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Other translations you have in front of you might use the word anything that is vile or anything that is empty. And that word translated from Hebrew in our English versions, the word anything, is a word that can mean not only physical objects, but also abstract ideas or beliefs or convictions. And so he's saying that whether it's a belief system, whether it's a concept, an object certainly, and yes, even a person, he will not set his eyes, set it before his eyes. Speaks of this this phrase of uh, putting it before his eyes speaks of looking at it with approval. That's what it means to look on it or put it before his eyes. It's not just literally talking about letting the organs inside your face that are used for sight to be aimed physically at it, but he's talking about approval being given to it. The end of verse 3, he talks about those who fall away. It's referring to people who have been unfaithful. 
whether to the covenant community somehow or perhaps a pursuit of righteousness in their own life, personally, privately. These are, there are arguments to be made for translating this a little bit differently. A phrase, instead of, I hate the work of those who fall away, could potentially be, I hate disloyalty. Or, I hate the work of uh, those of that what faithless people do. Guys, if I'm stumbling over my words, I recently had VBS. So, if you could just bear with me this morning, I'm a little tired. So, you get the idea here. Look at the harsh terms as well that this pursuit of integrity leads to. David says he hates a lack of integrity, this unfaithfulness, this impurity, this inconsistency. You contrast that with the favorable terms in the beginning of verse 6, in which David describes his commitment to rule and reign in a way that does look with favor on the faithful in the land contrasted with those who fall away. He also says in the second part of verse 6 that people who are faithful and blameless will minister to him. He says that they can dwell, he can dwell with them. In other words, he can bring them close. It possibly might even mean that he's going to make them advisors literally in his house or palace because he's the king. He says that people who are faithful and blameless will minister to him. Again, probably talking about closeness and counsel and encouragement, ministry. And there's more of this in verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. David's desire for integrity is expressed now regarding explicit deceit and lies. He uses a lot of the same language again. Dwell in my house before my eyes. He's coming to and he's committing to an ethic in his reign that pursues integrity. So how can he allow for those who practice deceit or who are characterized by lies to give him advice or be close to him? He wants integrity. He wants honesty. He wants consistency in his reign, and all who influence it. Look back at verse 4. At the very beginning, he says that he won't permit a perverse heart either. Now, whether he's talking about himself here or, once again, about the people that he's going to surround himself with, people that's going to be in his inner circle, the point remains. In context, you could argue that since it's between two references to people he's going to stay away from, that that's what he's talking about here. But you could just as easily argue that he's going to stay away from uh, a, a, a commitment otherwise as well, in his own personal heart. Either way, the point remains, I'm keeping perverseness, evil, wickedness, impurity, unfaithfulness, inconsistency of righteousness away. And verse 4, at the second, in the second half, look at how he phrases this. I will know nothing of evil. And again, I remind you, David is not talking about a commitment to what we would potentially think of as Pharisaic perfection. But he is talking about pursuing true, real purity of heart because of his love for God and his desire to serve well as God's king. And I just pause for a moment and say, oh, that God's people would reflect the same commitment. How different the church of Jesus Christ would be if his people would resolve in their hearts like David did here to a commitment to know nothing of evil. 
the beginning of verse 5, it says that he's also got zero tolerance for secret slander. I'll come back to this in a minute, but look how serious he is about having no tolerance for people who slander in secret. It says, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. He is going to exercise his kingly authority to bring down God's vengeance on those whose lack of integrity leads them to the horribly destructive sin of slander, gossip, smearing another's name, spreading things about people that will damage their reputation, and doing so either by stretching the truth or some sort of blatant false witness. And so, Psalm 101 shows that integrity is a big deal for King David. And it was to remain a big deal for Israel's kings. David is committed to turning away from corruption, to not looking with favor on any kind of wickedness, to literally hating actions that come from worthless, empty, vile, disloyal, and evil ideals and beliefs, even to keeping away from close interactions and relationships with people whose beliefs and actions and characteristics are not consistent with the integrity he desires. Why? Because he's the anointed king of Israel. God appointed him and anointed him. He set him in place to represent him, to guide and to lead his people, and to demonstrate to the world what having a relationship with God looks like. And so, integrity is the main thing here in terms of volume, but there are two other, I think, important commitments here as well. Number two, a commitment to valuing humility. Look at the end of verse 5. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. It may seem kind of small in comparison to the rest of the volume of Psalm 101, but I think it's really important. It's right after he says he's going to destroy those who destroy others with their slander, and he connects slanderous wickedness to another kind of evil called, in this verse, a haughty look and an arrogant heart. Now, understood in the context of the rest of the psalm, this certainly fits with the other negative characteristics that David wants to turn away from, because if you think about it, an arrogant heart and a haughty look or pridefulness is going to lead to the lack of integrity that David wants to be intentional to avoid. And so I think he's making a clear connection between the destructive, secretive slander to a heart of pride. It's what's called in Hebrew poetry a parallelism. Two statements that are back-to-back with each other and do communicate similar things, but in different ways. And so it's kind of like David is saying in the first part of it, I'm going to rain down judgment on those people who seek to take down others through their deceit, and I won't allow those prideful, haughty people to prevail. But I do think it's worthwhile just to take a moment and meditate on the importance of humility to Israel's king. Because it is the evil of pride that leads people to slander, to gossip, to use their words to tear down or harm others. 
But think about it. Pride is also at the root of every other sin. Pride is what led to the first sin. The serpent tempted Eve to want to be like God. To think that she knew better than God and to distrust him. And so pride is then what led Eve to take the fruit because she thought she deserved to enjoy its beauty. Genesis tells us she looked at it and saw that it was pleasing and wanted to taste it, wanted to try it. She thought she deserved to enjoy its beauty and to benefit from its knowledge. Never mind being subservient to God. Never mind humbly trusting him. Never mind the good of my husband. I'm focused on me right now. You see, the evil of pride leads people to love self more than others, including God, which then leads to murder, leads to hatred, leads to envy, leads to theft, leads to lust, leads to adultery, and so on with many, many, many other kinds of sins. So think about it, my friends. Pride goes deep, and it comes out in all shapes and sizes. And think about this, these words in the second part of verse 5, David's words here, in connection with some words from his son Solomon. I put Proverbs 6, 16 through 19 on the screens. I'll read it for you. It says, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are, that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. You see some similarities there to what David is committing himself to avoid in Psalm 101, don't you? And the first one on Solomon's list here is haughty eyes or pride. So my friends, before we move on, Please don't think of pride as a small sin. Please don't think that a haughty look and an arrogant heart are a small thing. It leads to all kinds of other destruction. It leads to the destruction of others. It leads to the destruction of relationship with God. It leads to the destruction of self. And it's at the heart of the kind of evil that the godly king of Israel hates. Before we move on, take a look at the uh, second line of verse 2. You see that little phrase? It seems like it might be out of place. There's some debate as to what it's about. The phrase that says, oh, when will you come to me? What exactly it's about, some scholars discuss, but I think it's simply an interjection by the king at the outset of his expression of a commitment to a godly reign, where he expresses his need for God's help. It's like David is saying, okay, here's goes. I'm promising and committing to do this, oh Lord help me, and this, and this, and this, and this, and so on. And if it is what I think it is, then it's just another indication of the humility that David values. Lord help me, not I got this. The third main commitment in Psalm 101 is a commitment to executing justice. There's two mentions of this in Psalm 101. Talked about the first one a little bit already. In verse 5, where he commits to destroy the secret slanderer. 
The one who smears other people's reputations behind their backs through deceitful words, saying that they are worthy of his just judgment on behalf of God. And when you see that, do you wonder why slander would be mentioned here as worthy of destruction? I mean, on the one hand, we who are believers understand it's worthy of destruction because all sin is sin. Every sin is a heinous treason against God, and therefore it's worthy of eternal death and God's judgment. So in that sense, it makes perfect sense. But in terms of an earthly king committing to executing a rigid code of justice when it comes to slander to the point of bringing down God's vengeance on those who slander might make you say, isn't that a little heavy-handed, David? But here's why it's important to David. Because in that time and in that place, slander was regarded as a big deal because of its ramifications in society. Slander, false witness, could lead to unjust punishment, including death being done to others. And so those who slandered very well could have led to a person that they slandered being judged unjustly, even being put to death. And so David wants to silence that slander. He is in this position as the leader of the nation. And so he wants to be committed to no tolerance for anything like that. He wants to end it. He wants to be swift in his judgment in a matter that could lead to an unjust punishment or death of others. So there are legal connotations to this word slander that David speaks of here. And that's why he wants to be swift to judge it. Justice is also what David ends this psalm with in verse 8 where it says, morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. That phrase, morning by morning, is also a phrase with judicial and legal connotations. That phrase, morning by morning, refers to the duty of ancient kings to deal with judicial matters that lesser courts either couldn't decide or weren't able to. And so this duty of the king to decide these undecided matters was a regular rhythmic duty of the king. And in fact, you can see other references in the Old Testament to a time where someone was was judging morning by morning. And so the king, morning by morning, would deal with judicial matters. And David is committing to doing justice in society consistently, faithfully, morning by morning. Once again, there's no tolerance for wickedness. The phrase he uses, in the land. I will destroy the wicked in the land. I will cut off evildoers from the city. What he's talking about here is this intentional, he's using this intentional language to talk about the city of the people of God and their whole Jewish nation. And he is the head of that nation and lives in that city. And so he is speaking in that way as a head, or the head in a sense, human, humanly speaking, of Jewish justice. And he says that he will act out his role of God-given authority to punish the wicked and honor the righteous. It's important to see that justice is one of the very things that David also wants to praise God for all the way back in verse 1. 
He says, I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, this Lord of steadfast love and justice, I will make music. And so justice is one of the main things that David is committing to, and it is tied to the fact that it's one of the main things about who God is. He is a God of steadfast love and justice. Okay, so now, what do we take from Psalm 101 as the people of God today? We can take some of this with us, can't we? We can read through Psalm 101 and say, yes, I want a desire to be a person of integrity. I want Christians to be people of integrity, the people of God today to have integrity in whatever positions of leadership God has us in. That's a good thing. We can say that a desire to put a high priority on humility in our own lives and to surround ourselves with godly people is a good thing. And even David's desire to rule with justice is something that we can relate to in a way because if we ever have opportunity to act justly in whatever sphere we're living in, we want to do that and we certainly want to support leaders who promote justice in our society. We want to stand for justice ourselves. And so there's certainly something to be said for our relating these commitments to our own lives. But I don't think Psalm 101's purpose is to say to us, here are some things everyone should aspire to. You know why? Because none of us are kings. And this was written by a king about his role as a king and about his reign over his kingdom. And so in one sense, sure, take some of these commitments, plug them into your own life. Praise God. Pursue integrity. Value humility. Be supportive in the execution of justice. You see, that one sort of starts to break down a little bit because I can't preach this passage to you and say, now you, like David, go execute justice in your kingly role. Doesn't work, because none of us are kings. And so with the context of the author and the setting, and Psalm 101's place in history, I think we have to read and apply Psalm 101 with that kingly context close in mind. And when we do, I think the true purpose of this psalm will come into clear focus for us. My friends, the best way to read and understand Psalm 101 is as a poem written by a king who was committing to rule well in the role that God had placed him in. It's a song that was inspired by God to communicate the commitments of Israel's king. But when you read it that way, you wind up with a problem. Because if you read it with the understanding that this is essentially an ancient job description for an Israelite king, then Psalm 101 does not leave the reader today with happy feelings or an easy application. In fact, there's some sad irony here when you know the rest of the story, isn't there? David was expressing his commitment to a reign of justice and righteousness and integrity but he wound up violating this very standard. And then his son Solomon went on to do the same thing. Neither of them fulfilled this standard. And you know then, every other king that followed them failed to live up to this standard. In fact, most of the king's failures were pretty horrible. Even aside from 
David's adultery and murderous conspiracy to cover it up, and aside from Solomon's womanizing, how many times do the historical books say something like, and then so-and-so reigned in his father's place, and he did what was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he did what was even more wicked in the sight of the Lord than his father before him? And to make things worse, scholars tell us that Israel's kings after David probably used Psalm 101 in their inaugurations. And so they then went on either to violate it, even though they had committed not to, or they never even had any intention of fulfilling that commitment because it was just a sort of religious ritual that they went through, kind of like the president putting his hand on the Bible and saying, I swear to do this and that and the other thing. And so when Israelites later on read and meditated on Psalm 101, knowing their context, it didn't leave them with a kind of patriotic pride in Israel's kings. And the same goes for us. Whatever utopian idealism you might have felt at first reading Psalm 101 and thinking, man, wouldn't it have been great to live under a king like David or a king like Israel's? It quickly fades when you know the whole story kind of leaves you feeling empty, kind of leaves you feeling depressed, kind of leaves you feeling needy, leaves you wishing for the kind of king that this psalm describes. And that, my friends, is where I believe Psalm 101 is leading us today, to the true king of Israel. Because there is a Davidic king of Israel who did and does fulfill Psalm 101. And he was and is far better a king than David was. There is a better king than any of David's descendants. There is a better king than any U.S. president or British prime minister or crown prince or dictator or any kind of government leader there is today. And that king does and will forever live out the standard of Psalm 101. And that king is a son of David. And his name is Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the chosen one of God, of whom Isaiah prophesied that a king will reign in righteousness, speaking of Jesus, and of whom it is said in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul that Jesus is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, my friends, I have good news for you. Jesus is is the king of Israel that Psalm 101 describes. He is characterized by integrity, perfectly. There is nothing false. There is nothing inconsistent. There is nothing impure. There is nothing deceitful about him. He's also characterized by humility. His whole earthly life was filled with placing the needs of others above his own. And even one of the main aspects of his motivation for his gospel work came, the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, from him not counting his equality with God a thing to be grasped. He's also characterized by perfect justice. He shall reign forever, and there is coming a day when everyone will look at him and his reign and know and profess that everything he did and does was right. And so Psalm 101 is a description of the commitments of Israel's king. 
It is a description of the commitments of the truest king of Israel, the ultimate king of all the people of God forevermore afterwards. He is all these things. Hallelujah. And so what do we do with this? I'll tell you what we do with this. We trust this king. We embrace this king. We give thanks for this king. We pursue the increase of our love for this king. Maybe you have never trusted in him and embraced him as your king, as your savior before. Maybe you've lived a good life, maybe even a religious one, and so you've never thought that you needed him. Or maybe you've lived a life of such rebellion and unrepentant sin that you feel you could never be accepted by such a king. But my friend, the Bible tells us that if you turn to King Jesus and you turn away from your sin and simply believe in his sacrifice on the cross and his triumph over death at the empty tomb, you will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to his kingdom of light. So embrace his reign Trust in him today if you never have. And, and, and I warn you, beware putting him off or ignoring him. He is a benevolent king, but he is a just king. He will not let sin go unpunished. He is a righteous, just judge who is committed to integrity and humility and justice. He is a benevolent king, but he is just. Don't ignore him. Or perhaps you are a Christian in this room. You have trusted in this king for salvation already. But at the moment, your life doesn't look like the life of a joyful, trusting subject of the king. Instead, you're often stressed, angry, fearful, worried, upset about something, anxious about the next thing, miserable, or a mixture of all the above. My Christian friend, the description of the king in Psalm 101 is exactly the description of a king that is now reigning. He is king now, and so you can trust him. And if you trust him, in terms of your daily, moment-by-moment life, you won't need to fret about earthly kings and their failures and what they do because your king is eternally and perfectly just in his justice, in his judgment, in his righteous reign. And if you're trusting him on a daily basis, you either won't be or you'll be less anxious about what seems like unaddressed sins in the world around you because you know that your king will, one way or another, deal with that sin and it will be just. And of course, sometimes God uses us in that process, but I think you know what I mean. And if you trust him as the ideal king that the people of God have always needed, it will then be easier for you and I to resist temptation to sin. Because why would we want to act like we're part of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of this world when we know the better joys of the kingdom of God? And so, my friends, the commitments of the king in Psalm 101 are commitments that David and all the other kings of Israel failed to uphold and fulfill. 
but every single one of these commitments of Israel's king was upheld by King Jesus. And so look to him as your king. Devote yourself to him, either for the first time or afresh as one of his children. Let's pray to that end now. Lord, you have promised that when your word goes out, it does not return empty. Your word says that the grass withers and the flower fails, but your word stands forever. Your people have delighted in your word for millennia. And so we ask that in a moment as we meditate on this text in our own hearts and pray quietly and consider what you are teaching us, that we would respond to your word that does not go and return empty, that never fails, and in which the people of God have delighted for millennia. Lord, may we look to this king. May we trust in him every day and for all of our lives. May we remember that even when the kings of this world and the issues around us cause us to fret or fear or doubt or worry, you are reigning. And every earthly ruler, every king of Israel, every president of the United States and other leaders around the world have always failed to live up to Psalm 101. But our King Jesus, you are the perfect and true king of your people. You are the king of our lives. And so help us as we follow you to remember this and to let those truths transform the way we think, the way we speak, the way we act forever. And I pray in Jesus' name. Let's take a few moments and meditate and pray in light of Psalm 101.